Uh, Let's read from Psalm 95, beginning at verse 1. Come, let us sing for joy to the Lord. Let us shout aloud to the rock of our salvation. Let us come before him with thanksgiving and extol him with music and song. For the Lord is the great God, the great King above all gods. In his hands are the depths of the earth, and the mountain peaks belong to him. The sea is his, for he made it, and his hands formed the dry land. Come, let us bow down in worship. Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker, for he is our God, and we are the people of his pasture, the flock under his care. Today, if only you would hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as you did at Meribah, as you did that day at Massah in the wilderness, where your ancestors tested me. They tried me, though they had not, sorry, though they had seen what I did. For 40 years, I was angry with that generation. I said, they are a people whose hearts go astray and they have not known my ways. So I declared an oath in my anger. They shall never enter my rest. Let's head over to Hebrews chapter 3. And in the Black Bibles, it's page 1706. 1706. And we'll be reading verses 1 to 19. Therefore, holy brothers and sisters, who share in the heavenly calling, fix your thoughts on Jesus, whom we acknowledge as our apostle and high priest. He was faithful to the one who appointed him, just as Moses was faithful in all God's house. Jesus has been found worthy of greater honour than Moses, just as the builder of a house has greater honour than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but God is the builder of everything. Moses was faithful as a servant in all God's house, bearing witness to what would be spoken by God in the future. But Christ is faithful as the Son over God's house, and we are his house, if indeed we hold firmly to our confidence and the hope in which we glory. So, as the Holy Spirit says, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as you did in the rebellion during the time of testing in the wilderness, where your ancestors tested and tried me, though for 40 years they saw what I did. That is why I was angry with that generation. I said their hearts are always going astray and they have not known my ways. So I declared an oath in my anger, they shall never enter my rest. See to it, brothers and sisters, that none of you has a sinful, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God. But encourage one another daily, as long as it is called today, so that none of you may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. We have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original conviction firmly to the very end. As has just been said, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as you did in the rebellion. Who were they who heard and rebelled? Were they not all those Moses led out of Egypt? And with whom was he angry for 40 years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies perished in the wilderness? And to whom did God swear that they would never enter his rest if not to those who disobeyed? So we see that they were not able to enter because of their unbelief. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Mel, for reading those passages. 
Well, when my kids were little, I used to read them the book, Guess How Much I Love You. It's all about little nut brown hair and big nut brown hair and how they try and express their love for one another. Little nut brown hair says, I love you as high as I can hop. But big nut brown hair says, I love you as high as I can hop. That's good hopping, thought little nut brown hair. I wish I could hop like that. He tries again. I love you all the way down the lane as far as the river. But he's trumped again. I love you across the river and over the hills. Then little nut brown hair looks up at the sky. Nothing could be further than the sky. I love you right up to the moon, he says. And as big nut brown hair settles little nut brown hair to sleep, he whispers, I love you right up to the moon and back. My kids and I used to and still do try to outdo each other in saying how much we love one another. And the one-upmanship has continued on in our family in many different ways. It went from, if you could have a superpower, what superpower would you have? I'd be super strong and I'd have laser eyes. And another would be saying, well, I'd be able to fly and I'd have laser eyes and I'd have super speed. Now they're grown. It's how many planks can you do, and how many chin-ups and weights can you lift? I wonder if you have a friendly, or maybe unfriendly, sibling rivalry, or a co-worker rivalry. It's everywhere. Politicians trying to outdo one another, networks and companies rivaling each other, sports fans arguing about who is the GOAT, which stands for greatest of all time, and whether we realize it or not, we spend our days comparing with one another. We compare jobs, we compare education, we compare our houses, our clothes, our bodies. We even compare when it comes to religion. But what happens when the grass looks greener on the other side? It's so annoying when you go to buy something and you walk out happy, thinking how great it is that you have this little piece of technology and then uh, you find it selling for a cheaper price, or the next model comes out, and suddenly it's not quite so exciting, and you have buyer's regret. You may have started out like that with Christianity. You may have been really excited about your faith when you first became a Christian. Perhaps you were younger and more enthusiastic, but that enthusiasm has worn off now, and it seems a little naive or foolish to you, perhaps. And you keep going through the motions of being a Christian, but the inconveniences bother you more now than what they did in the beginning. It gets in the way of other things that you'd rather be doing. It takes up too much time and involves too many sacrifices. And when you look around at church more and more, you only see the things that, don't like, that you don't like and that make you annoyed. And you may look at your friends who don't have any religion and... To be honest, their lives look fulfilled and happy and simpler than yours. And as we've seen to the book of Hebrews, the audience there, they were doing their own comparisons. They too were looking at what they were told about Jesus and comparing that with what their Jewish buddies had. Is Jesus worth it? Is he actually better? Let's see what the argument from a Middle Eastern Jewish perspective is 
And then we're going to have a think about what it might look for us. So briefly, in chapter 3, we have the comparison between Jesus and Moses. Now, Moses is an absolute legend in the eyes of the Jews, the most important figure in Judaism, the goat, besides God, of course. He is the only prophet to speak directly with God. He led the people out of Egypt. He received the law. He wrote the Torah. He knew God face to face. And Deuteronomy chapter 34, verse 10 says that there was no other prophet like Moses. And in some Jewish Christian sections, Jesus was seen as a second Moses. And just like Moses, the writer of Hebrews says, Jesus was faithful. Verse 2, he was faithful to the one who appointed him, just as Moses was faithful in all of God's house. God commissioned both Moses and Jesus to do a job, and they were both faithful in carrying it out to completion. So the way in which they carried out their job was the same. They were both faithful. But their job and position, the writer says, is different. And therefore, Jesus is worthy of greater honour than Moses, he says in verse 3. So what's the difference? Let's look at verses 5 and 6. Moses was faithful as a servant in all God's house, bearing witness to what would be spoken by God in the future. But Christ is faithful as the son over God's house. Do you see the difference? Moses is faithful as a servant in God's house. Jesus is faithful as the son over God's house. One has a cool job where he gets to work in God's house. It's kind of like an actor who gets to pretend that they're a superhero or a king or a queen, but then once the performance is done, the outfit, outfit and the special effects are all removed, then you have to go home. Jesus, on the other hand, he doesn't work there. It's his entirely, and it belongs to him, and he's over it because of who he is. He's the son. It's who he is, not something that he does temporarily. The author says that just like the builder of the house is more important than the house itself, because the builder expresses their talent through making the house, whereas the house reflects the talent of the builder. So Jesus is superior to both. The house, which the author says in verse 6 is a symbol of God's people, and he's superior to the servant who faithfully cares for the house, which is his people. And the author also lists a few other titles for Jesus that he's going to unpack later, such as apostle and high priest. Interestingly enough, Moses knew exactly who was greater. He prophesied in Deuteronomy chapter 18, verse 15, that God would raise up a prophet greater than he. You must listen to him, Moses said. And when Jesus went to the mountain with Peter, James and John, just after Peter had declared that Jesus is the Messiah and Jesus had told them that he must suffer and be killed and on the third day rise again, Jesus transfigured in front of them. I've got a painting here to show you from Raphael. His face shone. His clothes were dazzling light. And Moses and Elijah appeared with him 
And God's voice said, this is my son whom I love. Listen to him. Moses and Elijah, who represent the law and the prophets, and who both met with God on a mountaintop. They're very important Old Testament figures. There we go. Thank you. His head's cut off, but that's okay. <laughs> there we go. <laughs> um, yes, Moses and Elijah, who, were, who represented the law and the prophets, they were very important Old Testament figures. But as we heard in Hebrews chapter 1, <coughs> Jesus is the radiance of God's glory. He comes to fulfill the law and the prophets, Matthew, uh, Jesus says in Matthew chapter 5, verse 17. Jesus is not on par with them. He is unique and without equal. As Joseph Ratzinger observed, Jesus shines from within, unlike Moses in Exodus 34. He does not simply receive light, but he himself is light from light. Jesus is light from light. We get attracted to the light of others today, not realizing that it's borrowed light. We might be attracted to the non-religious spiritual who talk about love and peace without rules or judgment. And there's a lot going for it until you notice that the light is actually pretty dim and that they're so self-consumed with their own self-actualization and little community that they neglect matters of justice and action. We can get attracted to doing good works, thinking that if we have influence in these realms for our political or social cause, or making a difference at work, that that will fulfill us. But we so easily become superior and virtue signaling and abandon our ethics and denigrate others to push our agenda through. And the light that we once chased wanes. We get attracted to comfort, sleeping in on a Sunday, keeping up a barrier with our church family so that they never see the real you. We seek compromise and easy answers. And when issues are complex, it's easy to pick a side and stay with that rather than working through the nuances and walk away from a faith that is just too hard to reconcile with what everyone else is saying. There's a light in so many places that entices us, but it is a borrowed light. Jesus shines from within. He is light from light, the source of all light. And the more we look at him, the more we will see that everything that we have been searching for is found in him. Everywhere and everything else leads us into the wilderness. In the years, the early years of white colonial settlement, the bush was thick and there were no neighbours nearby and children easily wandered away and got lost. And in 1999, Peter Pierce wrote a book called The Country of Lost Children, an Australian Anxiety. And he talks about the mystique and fear that the Australian bush held over European settlers as depicted in these paintings here by Frederick McCubbin. He did two paintings called Lost, where there's a little child that is lost and alone and surrounded by a dense bushland. Or you might be familiar with Picnic at Hanging Rock, where the young schoolgirls 
wander away and vanish without a trace. Or the real life stories of the Beaumont siblings, Azaria Chamberlain, or more recently, William Tyrrell. In the past, we feared being lost in the endless scrub or the desert. These days, we're more likely to get lost in a plethora of information. This gamut of data overload, which can be so overwhelming and we lose a clear path forward. The continual consumption of digital content, news and opinions, constant distractions and interruptions, means that we're so inundated and influenced by the loudest voices online that it's hard to know what we think on our own. Society's views have shifted so quickly and are driven by identity politics. It's hard to separate what is true from what seems good. The wilderness is not so literal as metaphorical these days. And even though things may have sped up in recent times, this problem of getting caught up and enticed away from God is as old as human civilization. The writer illustrates this by quoting Psalm 95, which Mel read earlier, which is referring back to an event in Israel's history from Exodus 17 and Numbers 14, where the people of God grumbled against God and wished to go back to Egypt. And because of their rebellion, God decreed that not one of them would see the land that God had promised them. And so they wandered around in the wilderness for 40 years until each one of them died outside the promised land. What led to their rebellion? Had they not seen God's greatness? Yes, they had seen God provide for them out of nothing, time and time again. Or had they not known God's love? On the contrary, they had recognised that God had heard their cry and he'd acted to redeem them. They had plenty of evidence for God's reality, his power and his love. So what was the problem? Where does this unbelief and apathy towards God come from? Well, the text says that the problem was their hearts, the innermost part of ourselves that so easily goes astray. Verse 7, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as you did in the rebellion. Verse 10, That is why I was angry with that generation. I said, their hearts are always going astray. Verse 12, see to it, brothers and sisters, that none of you has a sinful, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God. Our hearts become hard and callous towards God's loving voice. We turn astray and turn aside from the living God, surrendering to unbelief. And the writer is saying, don't let history repeat itself. Don't you be like the wilderness people of the past. You know, we have such a tendency to think, well, I would never do that. When we read the stories of the Israelites rebelling or the disciples' disbelief, we so easily think they are so dumb. I would never do that. 
And when we watch movies about injustice and war and sacrifice, it's so easy to think that we would be the ones being the whistleblower, the martyr, the hero, rather than the coward, the denier, and the villain. But Hebrews chapter 3 warns us that we are not immune from sin's deceit. Just as Peter swore that he would never leave Jesus or disown him, so many more than three times do we deny and betray our Lord. Hannah Arndt was a 20th century political philosopher and a Holocaust survivor. And in the 1960s, she was investigating Adolf, Hitler, uh, sorry, Adolf Eichmann's trial, and she was struck by how ordinary and bland he was. Terribly and terrifyingly normal, she said. And Arndt coined the phrase, the banality of evil, to describe how seemingly ordinary people can commit such horrific crimes by simply following orders and not questioning them. In Arndt's opinion, going along with the rest and wanting to say we were quite enough to make the greatest of all crimes possible. Don't let history repeat itself. Don't be like the wilderness people of the past. We must learn from our ancestors. So what's the solution? In what can we place our hope? How can we persevere in trusting in Christ? The solution rests on two things, sharing and holding. Verse 1, Therefore, holy brothers and sisters, who share in the heavenly calling, fix your thoughts on Jesus, whom we acknowledge as our apostle and high priest. Verse 13, but encourage one another daily as long as it is called today so that none of you may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. We have come to share in Christ. Dear friends, our confidence is not in ourselves to persevere. It is confidence in Christ Jesus. We share in the riches of Christ, in being found in Christ, in sharing in his inheritance, in sharing the fruits of his perfect life and substitution on the cross, where he takes our sin and we receive his righteousness. The Jewish believers had Moses, and he was faithful to a point, but even he did not enter into the promised land because of his sin and he died in Moab. But we have Christ. He was faithful in every way. His heart never turned from the Father. He always trusted him. He was faithful to the end and drank the cup of God's wrath so he could redeem us and make us holy. So we remember what it is that we share. We share in what Christ has done for us. And we place our confidence, not in our faithfulness, but in his. And as an aside, I think it's really helpful to learn from the book of Hebrews and how we can use the same strategies here of showing that Jesus is better, 
rather than poking holes in someone's worldview and being negative and critical. Positive apologetics that show that Christian truth is winsome and it leads to a person's flourishing is a much better way to help those who are dear to us who aren't convinced that the gospel is good news yet. So to paraphrase Pascal, people hate religion because they think that it might be true. The cure for this is to show them how attractive the gospel is so that they wish that it were true and then show that it is. So for both believers and non-believers alike, we can all grow in appreciating just how wonderful the gospel is and how Jesus meets our deepest needs. So sharing, and then finally, we hold on. Verse 6, we are his house, if indeed we hold firmly to our confidence and the hope in which we glory. Verse 14, we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original conviction firmly to the end. Our security is found in Christ, and we need to hold that tightly. He has won it for us, but we are warned not to let it go. Last year for my dad's 70th birthday, we hired a houseboat and went cruising down the Murray. And each night we had to tie up the boat to the tree on the shore so that it wouldn't drift away. And it was all good fun until one occasion we were preparing to move and then we realised that there was a thick branch that had lodged itself between the railing and that as the boat drifted on the strong current during the night and we just couldn't move. It was stuck there in the railing. Now a sensible person would have called the houseboat operators and get them to come with a chainsaw and chop off the branch. My dad, however, <laughs> at that point was more headstrong than sensible and was absolutely determined to extricate the boat himself and there was no way that we were going to call for help. That was made very clear. And so we all swung into action. My sister was trying to lever up the stuck branch with another branch, pushing it up. My mum was keeping the little ones from falling over into the water. Um, my kids were trying to find thick branches to help to um, put into the, the rope that was around the tree to kind of twist it and move it. As my dad was trying to rev the motor and pull the boat away enough from the shore so that we could kind of nudge the branch loose, but not lose the boat. And my brother-in-law and myself, we were trying to hold the rope as tightly as we could while all the pressure was bearing down on it. And our hands were burning and our muscles were aching as we held on with all our might. And I don't know how long it took. It seemed to take forever, I think. But gradually, we made progress and the branch was still dislodged. And it was an exercise in family bonding, if nothing else, I guess. <laughs> Well, that's how tightly we have to hold on to Christ. Philippians chapter 3, verse 12 puts it like this. Not that I've already obtained all this, referring to knowing Christ and the power of his resurrection and sharing in his sufferings, all have already arrived at my goal, but I press on to take hold of that which Christ Jesus has took hold of me. Brothers and sisters, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it. But one thing I do, 
forgetting what is behind me and straining toward what is ahead, I press on towards the goal to win the prize which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. This, dear friends, is how we don't become wilderness people. Our confidence is in Christ and that we share what he has won for us on the cross and we hold tightly to that, knowing that Christ is holding on to us. And brothers and sisters, this is something that we do not do on our own. This is something that we do as a community. Verse 13 says that we are to encourage one another daily. The language is plural, not singular. As we turn up to church each Sunday, we encourage one another. Even if you feel that your presence here is not important, we look out for one another. We remind each other of the gospel. We share in the Lord's Supper together. We sing and pray together. We support one another in hard times. We pray for one another and point one another to the hope that we have in Christ. Each day we have is a day to listen to God's voice and to hold on to his promises. So today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts, but encourage one another daily as long as it is called today. Don't be like the wilderness people. We have come to share in Christ Hold on to that. I know that I need God's help to do that. So will you join me in prayer? Let's pray together. Oh, Lord God, you are worthy of all our worship, all our love, but our hearts so easily go astray. Please, Lord, don't let us turn to borrowed light, but please help every single one of us here to hold on to you and to place our confidence in what we share in Christ. Help us to encourage one another and may we all stand before you in worship when we see you face to face in your glory. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.